So this morning I want to talk about a, a very traditional teaching, which is a powerful one. It's been a powerful one for me. And it actually relates directly to the sharing that we had right at the end of the sitting. And this is the teaching called the Teaching of the Eight Worldly Winds. These are the winds that, as it were, buffet us around, that knock us around in life. And the the eight worldly winds are the winds of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, and praise and blame. It's a fairly intense list. (laughs) And... It's, uh, it's a challenge to work with this, but I think the naming of these eight winds, and they're also sometimes called the eight conditions or the eight uh, worldly dharmas, it, they point out s- certain experiences that we have that may typically get us caught or send us off balance or in the metaphor of the winds, blow us around. And so the teaching points to how we might look at these eight qualities or eight experiences and work more skillfully with them. The aim is not to get rid of them at all. They're part of human life, part of the human condition. But the aim is to point out how these in particular, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. We probably could add others. We probably could, if we worked at it, we could probably come up with the 33 worldly (laughs) wins, you know, could um, expand. But these eight are very basic. And what's being suggested is that when we're unconscious of them, we tend, as it were, somewhat compulsively, in a conditioned way, just to be knocked around by them. And so the teaching suggests that by being more aware of these winds or these conditions, we can work more skillfully with them when they arise. And what I'll like to do in the talk is to explore what these winds are, explore the basic teaching out of which they come, and suggest some ways to work with them, suggest some ways to uh, act more skillfully with them. And my hope is that this will be a um, compelling topic that we'd like to work with in the next week and then come back and continue the exploration next week, which I I really like when we can do that together and and have some focus and structure, which is optional, optionally taken by by each of us, but some structure, if we so choose, for the next week. So you can put put on your, by your telephone or on your dashboard, the listing of the eight wins. (laughs) So... Um, And really this is a teaching ultimately about developing more equanimity or balance in our lives and in our practice, about how can we be more balanced when, uh, as it were, the vicissitudes of life come. Very mm, Very much noted in what we noted at the end of the sitting, just all of these difficult Uh, mostly difficult, sometimes wonderful, celebratory events occurring, situations occurring, and how can we work both skillfully 
and, and with, with compassion when they arise. And that's really always the direction of our practice, is to be with whatever comes up with greater wisdom and compassion, with greater clarity of mind and greater uh, openness of heart and connection. And so this teaching is wonderful in that it, it names these conditions. It's a very direct teaching, though. It's a very, you know, it doesn't, really doesn't spare any words. And I'll just say that this is a, this is a teaching that is found in a number of uh, the Buddhist traditions, and it's particularly emphasized in Tibetan tradition, where the phrase, if you look at Pema Chodron's work, for example, you'll see that she talks a lot about the eight worldly dharmas. That's her language. Others talk about the winds, but it's particularly beloved in the Tibetan condition, in the Tibetan um, teachings, perhaps because Tibet is very windy. I don't know. <laughs> so the teaching comes from a text called the uh, Loka Vipati Sutta, and it relates to the, the teaching, the, the, the worldly winds. It's a translation of Loka Dhamma. Loka means world, and Dhamma in this, uh, in this context means phenomena or conditions. And so uh, that's the, the literal term that's used. And there, in this text, the, uh, the Buddha is asking the question. He, he starts off by asking the question like this. These eight worldly conditions, or these eight worldly winds, keep the world turning round, and the world turns around them, these eight worldly conditions. Which eight? Gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. For an uninstructed person, all of these arise. For a practitioner, all of these arise. So what's the difference? What's the distinction? What's the difference between someone who is uninstructed and someone who is practicing? And so the Buddha reflects, starting off with the example of gain. He says, gain arises for an uninstructed person. That person does not reflect, gain has arisen for me. In other words, the person's not mindful. It's just happening. The person does not reflect, gain has arisen for me. It is impermanent, liable to lead to suffering and subject to change. That person does not know gain as it actually is. With such a person, gain, loss, and so forth consume that person's mind. When gain comes, that person is elated, and when there is loss, that person is dejected. Being thus involved, that person, I say, will not be free from suffering. And then the Buddha goes on to say, gain arises for a practitioner. That person reflects, gain has arisen for me. So there is mindfulness. And then there's also some reflection. It is impermanent, liable to lead to suffering, and subject to change. That person understands these conditions as they actually are. With such a person, gain, loss, and so forth do not consume that person's mind. When gain comes, that person will not be elated. And when there is loss, that person will not be unduly dejected. That person will be free from suffering. This is the difference, the distinction between the, the uh, well-instructed person and the uninstructed person. So if we had to look at this teaching, uh, we could say that in some ways it's an unpacking of the meaning of suffering, or the ways that we get caught in suffering. It's basically saying that, uh, if you may remember from the Four Noble Truths, this, the very, very basic teaching, 
that teaching is that there is suffering, suffering exists, and that the core cause of suffering is our compulsive tendency to grasp after things or push them away, to basically to grasp after what we think is pleasant and to push away what we find unpleasant. And this is an unpacking of that teaching. It's saying that basically that pleasure, as it were, or the pleasant comes in these different forms, comes in gain, praise, fame, and pleasure itself. And And that's what we tend to grasp hold of and that we tend to push away the various forms of the unpleasant, that is, uh, loss and blame, disrepute or infamy, we might say, and, and pain itself. And what's being pointed to is, is that this is a basic condition of our experience, that we have these happening all the time. We might even reflect that it's a preoccupation it's a preoccupation for us. It's a preoccupation in our society. We could say that what, what, are, the, what are newspapers? They're basically reports of the eight worldly winds. Okay. We, you know, if, they, if we wanted to have newspapers be more systematic, we could ask them to have wind number one in column one, wind number two in column two, and so forth. But, but think about it. I mean, it's a, one of the things I love about these teaching, kind of look at things a little freshly. Okay, what are newspapers? And what are... What are you know, what is People magazine? <laughs> if not, you know, focusing on some of the worldly winds, you know, and, and they uh, excite us, don't they? You know, we want to, oh, gain. This person gained. This person lost. This person's getting famous. This person's declining, you know, and so forth. And, and so they're, they're big in our society. They're big in our lives. And they're happening. They're happening all the time. And so the invitation of this teaching is to look more carefully at these winds, to see what they are, uh, not, not to get rid of them. I think that's important to say. We're not asked to get rid of them because we can't. But it's asked, what are they, and how might we act more wisely and compassionately when they arise? Is it possible to find more balance with them? Because for, for many of us, some of these uh, winds come, and they do knock us around. They knock us off balance. They knock us so that we actually can't so easily act wisely or compassionately. They take us into reactivity or feeling confused or lost. And in a sense, that's natural. And what we're invited to do is to see if we can work uh, more skillfully with them. And in particular, this teaching, uh, as as I suggested, invites us to develop greater equanimity. How can I be more balanced with what happens? And again, uh, equanimity is not about being aloof and not experiencing things. And it's also not about not feeling. But it's about how can I feel things for what they are and be as wise and compassionate as possible. Very challenging teaching. Just think of what was mentioned during some of the um, reflections and, and comments at the end of our sitting. Very difficult. Those are, of course, some of the most difficult situations. And in a way, we can practice with the less difficult ones. So I'll go through the eight winds, and as we explore them, you might ask yourself, which of these has the most power over me? Which do, what, what wind tends to blow me around more than others? Which are the harder ones for me? Which ones have I, am I pretty good with? Uh, and so forth. 
So the first, the first set is usually identified as pleasure and pain. And if pain is too interpretive a word, you could say pleasant and unpleasant, you know, uh, to, to, to um, help us to look at them more. And these are, these are very, very strong. And it's really interesting to reflect on how much we are motivated by pleasure and pain. You know, uh, Jack Kornfield often... Uh, on retreats, invites people just to look at their day and to, to ask ourselves, how much are we motivated moment to moment by pleasure and pain? It's like we wake up and there's, there could be, some, could be some pleasure. Oh, another day. I'm so interested about what's happening. Or it could be, oh, that, it's so early. <laughs> you know, got to go to what? Got to go to work or got to go to the the Dharma talk or whatever, whatever it is. So there could be that. And then we stay in bed a little bit and we feel, oh, my body feels a little stiff, unpleasant, got to move. And then we get up and say, oh, um, unpleasant feeling, need to go to the bathroom. Or, and then, uh, oh, pleasant idea, breakfast. Or unpleasant idea. And, and you get the idea, right, that there, we may be, just look at our day and ask ourselves how much are we drawn by the pleasant or the unpleasant? And in itself, that's not a problem. That's what the Buddha is going to say, or what, what I think the teaching is, is that these states in themselves are not problems. What's problem, what the problem is, is whether we're unduly either grabbing hold of them as if they would bring us happiness, or as if getting rid of certain states would bring us happiness. That's really, the, that's really what's being questioned. It's not that the state should go away or we shouldn't have them. And of course, sometimes, we, often we don't have a choice. But it's rather to look carefully and to say, how much is my whole sense of well-being dependent on having pleasure, gain, praise, and fame or good reputation or whatever, whatever we, however we see that? And how much is it dependent on avoiding their opposites? Rather, the Buddha is suggesting that there, could, there, there may be a deeper source of well-being, a deeper source in which we can, as it were, find refuge, you know, that there can be a deeper sense that is not dependent on the winds for our sense of well-being. So that's a radical teaching. So it's a, it's a pointed teaching. It's one that is challenging because all of us get caught by these. If not, uh, you know, if... Uh, often, if not a lot. And, and so it's fascinating to look at this. And what we're being invited to do is, again, I think there really are three ways to practice with each of these, at least three ways. One is simply to be mindful, to know that something is happening. A second could be to really explore, what is this like? What is pleasure like? What is pain like? What is, what is the unpleasant like? Because the conditioning tends to actually make us win something first appears, when pleasure appears, the condition tendency is simply to grab hold of it without actually seeing what it is. Same thing with the unpleasant. Same thing with gain or loss or praise or blame. It's just we are conditioned, all of us, to react when these are present, as it, almost as, a, as if we have some alert tower or we have some watchtower. When any of these get near, you know, the communication to central control <laughs> gets strong. Okay, we got we got um, got criticism and blame on the horizon. Got to got to move into action. What are we going to do? Oh well, 
don't know, I'll just uh, say something nasty to the person who just <laughs> criticized me or, or whatever. And there's a way that each of these kind of mobilize almost our self-defending ter- uh, efforts, really. And what we're invited to do is to be mindful, first of all, to notice that they're occurring. Simply to name them has tremendous power. And then we can be invited to explore, what are these actually like? What is the nature of them? Because often, we again, we've tended to be simply reactive and we don't even look. And that's the, the beauty of our mindfulness practice, that we are invited to notice that it's there. And just the noticing or the naming uh, creates some space in our minds. And it lets us it almost implicitly ask the question, this is happening, what's a wise way to respond? Usually we don't do that. Usually it's just one of these happens and bam, we go another direction. And so simply noting that they're present, simply naming them, it often doesn't change things dramatically, but it creates some space that eventually can have a result. So simply naming in the moment, as we do in meditation, we're encouraged when we're sitting here to notice unpleasant sensation in my back. Let me just notice that. Let me learn how to be present with it. Let me learn how to explore. Let me learn how to, especially if I know that there's no damage being caused, that it's just an unpleasant experience, let me, let me simply uh, notice what my mind tends to do with the unpleasant. And so in meditation... It's one of the most powerful areas of learning is actually to hang out both with the pleasant and the unpleasant. You know, it can be revolutionary in terms of the inside. No, it was for me to just see the extent to which uh, I would be driven to get rid of something unpleasant in a very conditioned way. So that's why one of the most powerful teachers, especially if we're on retreats, is when a mosquito or a fly lands on you. And it's just, it's amazing to watch the, the raw terror. <laughs> and it, we're, I think we're encouraged really to look at that, and we're encouraged to be present. There's sadness in the mind. Just to name it and to be present with it something unpleasant, there's been a loss, there's been a gain. Our mind gets very elated. We're invited to notice it. We're invited to notice it, to name it, to explore it. What is it like? What is it like? And then also to reflect. You know, and this is what is linked with the, uh, the sutta, with the teaching. We're invited to reflect. This is happening. We're invited to reflect. This is impermanent. This is changing. This is connected with suffering if I react in certain ways. And those tools can be very, very powerful for all these. So you might reflect as, as we go through these eight how you might work with them. So, so pleasure and pain, something we can look at. We have a lot of chances to do that, just to notice that it's happening. And to notice the extent to which we may have a kind of... Um, mm, even addiction to the pleasant. You know, and I think it's th- there's something also that I've experienced about even being in this culture where we have, for many of us, not all of us, but for many of us, there's a high level of comfort. And I know, and there's, there's also, for, at least for many of us, and it's not universal, a lot of things work right. They work well. I know when I've gone to other countries, <laughs> I, I, 
I sometimes I feel like a pampered American. You know, has anyone had that experience? Yeah. That, and it's something interesting to look at. I mean, there's something positive about things working, but there's also to the extent that we're addicted to it, it can be a problem. I know, I, I remember in the uh, early 90s, I made a number of trips. I made several trips to the former Soviet Union, one when it was still the Soviet Union. Then at that time, you couldn't even, you know, toilet paper was rare. I mean, talk about lack of comfort. <laughs> and and there, there was, um, you know, there were, there was, couldn't get a lot of things. And part of traveling is just to come to grips with that and to, and to see, oh my gosh, I'm used to this level and what's, what's that there? And so it's really an invitation just to explore and to, just to look at, at the extent to which we're bound by pleasure and pain. One of the facts that I'm, I think is really um, helpful is the fact that you can read in the suttas that the Buddha, especially in his later in his life, had a lot of physical ailments. You know, I'm just, I'm grateful that there was not some kind of mythologizing effort in the tradition. Because you see the Buddha, late in his life, he often has a bad back. He's often saying, I can't give the talk tonight. Will you do it? My back is killing me. That's in the text. It's beautiful. It's in the text. But it means that he was dealing with pleasure and pain himself. He also often had headaches. You know, and, and that's to me. That's um, I appreciate the fact that that's named and that's listed, that it's part of things. And there's you know the second set is gain and loss, and again we know how much this can affect us. There are all sorts of gains and losses. Could be financial, could be emotional, could be in terms of friendships. That these are happening, and these are very very challenging, particularly particularly um, larger ones, larger gains and losses, are very, very influential. And we also know that people are in our society are incredibly motivated to do things for gain and loss. Just think of the, the financial motivations that so many people have to try to get rich, to try to, to pile on gain. Think of all the things that people do. And we can know that there is, you know, we can reflect on, is there suffering connected with that? You know, and we can see that there is. You know, not, you know, I mean, we don't have to look very far. We can look at our own lives. We can look at national politics, invasions of other countries. It's all very much motivated by, by motivations of gain and loss. And so there's something that can really be learned in an interesting way by looking at experiences of gain and loss. You know, and I was reflecting on some of my own experiences, uh, both minor, intermediate, and large kinds of gains and losses. And it's very, it's, there's so much that can be learned about who, who we think we are, how we think the world should be, and, and uh, what knocks us around. Um, one of my favorite stories about this, in a way, comes from a friend named uh, Larry Rosenberg, who is a teacher in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I think this story is a little bit also connected with... Uh, some of the other winds, but Larry uh, told of this really powerful experience where he was studying with a Zen teacher and was, was supposed to be leading a retreat that was supposed to happen after Christmas. And he was living at the, the Zen center at that time, and because he was Jewish, he stayed, but everyone, all, everyone else at the Zen center went home. And actually, no one signed up for the retreat. And so Larry went to his teacher and you know, 
we could call this a kind of a loss, and said, well, I guess we don't hold the retreat. And his teacher told him, you hold the retreat, even though no one was coming. And he went and he, um, he taught the retreat, and, and the um, teacher told him, and do everything you would do ordinarily. So he said, you know, do your bowing, do your sitting, ring the bell, and even give your Dharma talks, even though no one was there. It was a four-day retreat. <laughs> and Larry said that for the first day, he felt really stupid. You know, here he was. You take this to be a kind of loss, but what his teacher was inviting him to do was to see the way his mind was organized around things going well or things not going well and to see if there was something deeper that was really motivating him. And Larry said that after the first day, something really clicked and he settled in. And it actually was a very powerful and beautiful experience, especially after several days. And he said since that time, he just hasn't got caught by the usual kinds of comparisons, you know, because even in the meditation world, as as I think would be obvious, the eight whirly winds still blow around meditation centers or so forth, and sometimes, you know, people would say, okay, how many people were at the retreat, you know? And we'd say, 80. Oh, pretty full retreat. How many were at the retreat? Six. Not so, (laughs) you know, you can see the the same winds can be present. And Larry said that going through that experience and really having to look really deeply at how he constructed what was good, what was bad, what was a gain, what was a loss, it changed things for him. And he really, in a way, came out the other end. And he said when, when he hears people now comparing or doing that or, you know, assessing numbers, he just, he just, something in him just smiles and he remembers that experience. That's so a very, that's I think part of the spirit of what we're invited to do, to really investigate. The same thing with fame and disrepute, that it's, um, again, we see how much this rules us. People wanting to be famous, wanting to be well-known, wanting to get, in Andy Warhol's phrase, what, their 15 minutes of fame? No, and I don't know whether that motivates us, but it certainly is strong in the world. People doing all sorts of things to get famous, to get well-known. And yet, it's something really to investigate. What is, and and we don't have to necessarily stay with fame and disrepute. We could stay with, you know, do I have a good reputation? Do I not have a good reputation among people who matter to me? And again, the, the... the invitation is to look and see whether we're, it's basically where do we take refuge? Where do we really ground ourselves? Is it in something that is related to the winds which continually blow, in that sense is more external? Or is it something more internal that we really ground ourselves in? And that, that's what the invitation is from this teaching, to really ground ourselves in something that maybe is deeper, is more fundamental, and, and not changing so much. There's, there's a powerful story in the Zen tradition of um, the Zen teacher Hakuen. And I, I don't know if this is a true story. It may not be, but it's a teaching story. It sort of makes a point. And uh, it's from the 17th century in Japan. And Hakuen is a, is a teacher at a local temple. And there is a, a young woman in the community who becomes pregnant. And she says that uh, Hakuen, the Zen teacher, uh, is the father. And there's a big uproar, 
and people criticize him. And in the story, what happens is that they bring the child to him, and he just and and he just says, "Is that so?" You know, when he's criticized and you know, said, "You did all these things," and and he he's willingly helps raise the child, and he, all he says is, "Is that so?" When he's would say, you know, or or he says something like, "Yes, I'll do that," and um, um, all the all the accusations, he just says, "Is that so?" Again, it's a story. And then what happens is that a year or two go by, and finally, in the story, uh, the woman is overcome by guilt because actually she was protecting a young uh, fisherman from a nearby village, and it wasn't actually Hakuin. And she goes and confesses and uh, in tears. And meanwhile, Hakuin's reputation has been besmirched. He's not seen in a very good light but he just keeps on raising the child and taking care of it. And then they come and they, they take the child away and in the story his response is, is that so? You know, that there's some way that, again, you can um, take, you know, question whether this is true, but it's more a pointing to a kind of balance that even at uh, great cost, he seemed to be able to keep some kind of inner inner truth. And I think that comes up especially with the, with the fourth set, which is the, the set of praise and blame, which maybe for us, I think for myself, this may be the strongest. Uh, praise and blame may, in my own life, have tossed me around. I don't know, maybe each of us have ones that are harder for each of us. But there's some way that we are, many of us are driven by wanting to be praised, wanting not wanting to be blamed, and we can go to great lengths to avoid blame and gain praise. We can even do things in which we lose ourselves. We can do things in which we act falsely to ourselves to gain praise or to avoid blame. And it's it's a very powerful area to look at because it's so intense, really. You know, this whole this whole um, working with this wind. You know. And I think, you know, having just published a book, I'm going to probably get some opportunities for practice <laughs> because uh, I haven't got any, um, haven't had any reviews yet. <laughs> so it's sort of like putting myself out there. I'm open for that. And I'll have to see how my practice goes with it. But I know for myself, uh, reflecting on some things in my own history, can just see how strong praise and blame have been. And I think it's, um, again, meant true for many of us. I was thinking of um, one particular experience where um, I was co-organizing a summer institute. This was about 15 years ago for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And we had a bunch of evaluations about halfway through a six-day summer session. And most of them were very positive, And there were about three or four that were negative. And my mind went right to, along with many of the other organizers, we just, these must be absolutely true. <laughs> Even though, you know, 80%, 90% of the evaluations were very positive. It's just something that, you know, oh my, and it was, and I, I really saw it at the time. It's very, very interesting to notice that, just to notice how much we can be driven by these forces. And just one other experience I, I, I found um, about seven or eight years ago, about eight years ago, I um, was the co-editor of a book on the work of Ken Wilber. And I wrote about a quarter of the book. People know who Ken Wilber is? How many people? 
people do. He's, he's an author, well-known author, who's been a kind of synthesizer of um, Eastern and Western approaches of psychology and spirituality, and written 20 books. And Anyway, he didn't like the book that we did. And about a year after the book came out, he wrote an article in which he um, publicly criticized the book, and hence me, in ways that were very public. It was kind of like, a, it was, I, I, was, I thought to myself, you know, I haven't really been publicly criticized before 20,000 people before. You know, and there, it was really interesting to see what um, I worked with. You know, that a lot of things came up. A lot of it um, I worked with on a retreat, so I really got to look at it. But it was really seeing, uh, and I think it was actually very helpful, because I got to see how much am I knocked around by criticism, and how much can I take refuge in something deeper. It was, a, it was actually a learning experience. So maybe just in closing, I'll just mention a few things that we can look out for. And I remember we, that the ways that we can practice are first to be mindful, second to really explore what these are about, to really stay with them, to say, okay, what is pleasure like? What is pain like? What is blame like? What, is, what does it feel like in the body? What's really going on? What's its nature? What do I find when I really stay with it? Rather than just, as it were, heading for the hills when, they, when the first uh, announcement of something hard comes and then grabbing hold when something positive comes. And so it's helpful in this light also to reflect for something that uh, drives us so much, it's very interesting to reflect that these are incredibly fleeting. You know, pleasure and pain can be very, very fleeting, many of these. Certain kinds of gain and loss can be fleeting. Some of them last, of course. Uh, but many of them are very fleeting. Uh, they, they change. You know, they, you know, we can have, be tremendously motivated by something that lasts for about a minute or so. Do you know that? Think of especially pleasure and pain. And they also can change back and forth. We can be praised one moment and criticized another. You know, and there, there are wonderful stories of, of how these can, can change so quickly. There was one story where a Zen teacher met a samurai, and the samurai asked him the question, uh, I, have a, uh, I have a question for you. And he says, tell me the difference between heaven and hell. And the Zen master started to say things, I'm not sure you really um, understand. Uh, you don't really look intelligent enough to really understand what the difference is between heaven and hell. And the, the samurai got incredibly enraged, raised his sword, was about to chop off the Zen teacher's head. Again, a story. <laughs> and at that point, the Zen teacher said, that is hell. And the samurai understood instantly and felt this incredible learning come over him. And then the Zen teacher said, and that is heaven. You know, so the sense of what's pleasurable or unpleasurable sometimes can change in a moment. You know, we can get one, uh, one comment one moment and another the other moment. So maybe to, to close by... Mm, Again, remembering how we might practice with these and knowing that the, that the winds themselves are not the problem, the gain and loss, the pleasure and pain, praise and blame, um, fame and disrepute are not the problem. The problem is that we 
run after them, and we, lo- we, we forget about potential ways to have actually deeper, a deeper refuge in our lives, or a deeper place where we take, uh, which we take as most basic. And the invitation here is to see if we can, instead of, as it were, taking refuge in the eight winds, whether we can take refuge in a deepening sense of wisdom and compassion, which increasingly, as in the development of equanimity, means that we in our wisdom and compassion are increasingly unshakable, that we increasingly can be able to be with this range of experiences with greater balance. Not because we will ourselves to do that, but because we've investigated. We've brought mindfulness, we've brought inquiry, we've brought exploration, and we know things so that when we've explored each of these, when we've explored praise and blame in some depth, and it comes again, there's something in us that understands, oh, a wind is coming, I'm likely to be tossed around, and I can find my grounding more in a sense of my own wisdom and compassion, in my own intelligence, and might be also take, take refuge in the intelligence of the community. And that this is, in some ways, this is what's being pointed to by this teaching, is that that is a, as it were, a more reliable place to stake our lives on, a more reliable refuge in that sense. So I'll invite us, if if we so choose, in the next week to really look at this teaching and to explore it uh, together. So thank you. Thank you. And keep it going. Keep it going for the question. Yeah. So, reflections or questions? Please. Um, could you describe more um, the holding on to and when to recognize when you're holding on to? Because I find it more difficult. Holding on to, let's say, pleasure or, or gain or praise or. Uh, sense of reputation. Well, two things occur to me, and maybe we can also see what others have experienced, that um, you're right. I, I think there is a kind of asymmetry in that the difficult uh, members of these four pairs usually more quickly uh, are linked with suffering and thereby come to our attention. And so there's a certain way that um, we get more lost in pleasure than we do in pain. Right? We get more lost in criticism than we do in praise. And so I think that's just partly just the way things are. So if it's possible to even uh, be on the lookout, so this is, I think, the invitation for the next week, can you be on the lookout even for the so-called positive ones, and just name them. doesn't mean trying to get rid of them, but just be on the lookout for them and name them. And the other way that we um, may become more aware is, is when they do turn to suffering, because they often, they sometimes will, that we, that we can, or when we find that, we're no, that they're no longer present, that when we are trying to hold on to pleasure, and it's just not there in the same way. In the same way, we sometimes can know, I'm suffering or I'm, I'm grabbing hold of. So that those are. Does that make some sense? That there there is um, 
often that we notice that the positive is there only a moment after when it's no longer present. So I think it, it does actually take more training and more practice to be aware in the moment when one of the positive ones is happening. So it's something that, uh, you know, as practice, you might, it might be helped by really having focus. You, know, you can work with something as simple as uh, working with, with food. You know, or, you know, like take a meal and just sit there, take a meal in silence and just sit there and notice when there's pleasant or unpleasant. Uh, just sit there and notice pleasant. Pleasant. You can also do that in the meditation that, that actually, not taught so much, but um, awareness of pleasant, unpleasant and neutral is the second foundation of mindfulness in the classic teachings of the Buddha, meaning that it's seen as very important actually to notice pleasant and unpleasant. So what you can sometimes do in a sitting, when there's some degree of um, stability of mind, be on the lookout for pleasant or unpleasant. So there's a kind of training that you can give yourself that can help you more readily notice it. Sometimes it's being attentive for the uh, comments in the mind. I like this more, (laughs) or something like that, or I like it, or this is good, or something some other similar comment. So uh, to train yourself for this, you might sit for a half an hour in a given sitting and be on the lookout for pleasant and unpleasant. And that, that, can, that can help also. Because part of, the, part of that training is to realize that, that uh, pleasant and unpleasant is happening sometimes in very small ways all the time. That we're sitting here and there's probably every moment of our experience lands somewhere on the spectrum uh, between agony and ecstasy. Probably most, a lot of it, probably more in the middle. Does anyone want to add to that in terms of what helps you notice the more pleasant tendencies to grab or to hold on? What helps you to notice in the moment? Please. Non habitually. Yeah. 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 So, so that would suggest to everyone here that from her Feldenkrais work, there's uh, it's often encouraged to do things non-habitually, which is, which is interesting, like to um, eat with your left hand if you're right-handed. And to, basically, it's the habitual, which we do almost as if we're in a trance, right? Some, sometimes, more or less. And so the invitation is to do things, how do you do things with fresh eyes? And one thing is to have a, something that's a little bit different about the situation. Like it might be to, what, um, um, Anyone give an example? Just a daily life example? Walk instead of drive. Yeah, walk, walk instead of drive. If you're, you have to go half a mile somewhere, walk instead of drive and see if you can just notice what that's like. Or um, walk 
might be to change the order in which you do your daily routines or something like that. It might be to, um, what? Um, Not go for the coffee. Have the coffee. Have the coffee, have the coffee after. Have the coffee mid-morning rather than early morning, <laughs> if you're still awake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, other questions, please. Yeah. One question that I had is, you know, sort of the connection or the difference between winds and whether there's a such thing as actual needs mm-hmm. you know, that human beings have mm-hmm. characterized having to go to the bathroom as a human need, mm-hmm. which is real. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, um, so I'm 33 and single, and so I've been thinking about you know the need for romantic love and intimacy. something feels genuine, genuinely like some sort of a need, you know, a fundamental human thing that brings genuine beauty to life. You know, how does one, you know, think about it or approach it or engage with that kind of motivation Mm -hmm. in a way that is, that also doesn't include attachment, you know, to the outcome or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, like where does that... Mm So it's a great question. Did, there, did everyone hear the question? It's, it's like, um, and it also invites the question of what do we do, what do we make of these winds? Does that mean that we just are here like a blob and don't, don't reach out for anything? And so it actually, it's, it's a great, I appreciate the question because it brings a kind of compliment to what I, what I was saying by inviting the question, uh, mm, are there qualities that we want to develop or are there parts of our lives that it's important to really aspire towards? That's one way to say it. Uh, and how, how does that relate to this teaching of the, uh, of the winds, which would seem to imply that we should be very balanced and, uh, and not go after uh, conventional gain or loss or, or uh, praise and blame? And so it actually is, um, it's, a, it's a really important question because it relates to something that I think sometimes gets a little lost in the translation because in the teachings of the Buddha, for example, it's very clear that it's encouraged to put out great effort to develop in certain ways, to develop uh, beautiful qualities. It's not that we just sort of sit like a bump in the log and expect awakening to occur, but it's actually that we're encouraged to aspire and put out a lot of effort to develop um, wisdom or to develop compassion or develop equanimity or to develop an open heart or to meditate a lot or to, to do this or that. And so the question is, and, it, and similarly might be to, there's also very clearly a place for meeting basic needs in the, in the, um, in the text. You know. Although monks and nuns don't have the same kind of needs, but there still is a teaching called the Four Requisites, which basically is about uh, food and shelter and medicine and, and clothing that are taken to be taken for granted. And if they're not there, that would be an issue. So it's, it's really to, to ask, um, 
let's see, how can I phrase this? It's really to ask, are there um, certain kinds of um, factors in our experience that we, do, that we are encouraged to aspire towards, but not in the sense of uh, grasping or compulsively pushing away. So I think that partly the emphasis is on uh, questioning anything which is fairly unconscious, automatic, and compulsive. That's, that's the one point of the teachings. And it's taken that our relation to these winds typically fall in that category. Then the question is, are there, are there uh, directions that we can develop in this case, towards a um, partner, or it might be to um, develop, let's say, to develop one's uh, vocation, to develop one's work, to develop, um, to move towards social justice, as in, you know, in the book that I have. And how, how are those, how, how is moving towards those intentions, or how, how is intending to have those in one's life different from being buffeted by the winds? Because I think I think there is, and it's um, it, it's important to see that difference. It's certainly there in the teachings of the Buddha. He gives the same teaching at the same time that he says, "Put out tremendous effort to become a loving person." And so it's uh, the difference seems to be on the level of in the level of consciousness or unconsciousness, level of reactivity, and the degree to which a certain um, end is really, um, in the Buddhist language, he would say, wholesome or skillful. In other words, does it really help us in our development? But I think the center of gravity is always, does this move me towards freedom? Does this move me towards greater freedom? And ultimately that freedom is not going to be dependent on any of the, um, as it were, lesser achievements or any of the other ways that we frame our lives. Does that, does that make some sense? So it's, it's, a, it's actually getting into a lot of subtleties here that I think are really important because that's where we live. And it's basically, it's basically to say, I hope I'm being articulate, I feel mostly articulate, but I could, probably could say it in a little bit clearer way, that, that um, mm, there's definitely a place for mm, developing to meet fundamental uh, needs. That's not the vocabulary the Buddha uses, but it's the, the ultimate need, if, you were, if we were to use that language, is for awakening and freedom. So the question is, to what extent does uh, something like developing one's vocation, finding a partner, bringing about social change, which are all worthy in certain ways, to what extent does that advance freedom? And to what extent do we have those kind of aims caught up with the worldly winds? That's, that's a clear... There, I got some nods. <laughs> that's a little clearer way of saying it because I think that, you know, we, again, we can think of it in a very standard way. The Buddha certainly encourages us to meditate, to really to, um, to, to develop well in meditation, to cultivate ethics, to cultivate all these things, to establish communities. Again, we could uh, see all of these as part of a group of very worthy things to develop. But what happens often is that our worthy projects get caught up with the winds. And so we could have um, meditation centers that are very caught up with praise and blame. We could have uh, 
meditators, you know, and again, that's something I actually had in my notes, I didn't talk about that. As a meditator, I can develop an incredible self-image about being a good meditator. And that would be to be caught by the winds. And there's a famous Tibetan saying, which, or story, where the, um, the teacher finds this uh, meditator with a good reputation, actually a famous, famous uh, um, advanced practitioner, who, who, according to this teaching, has a lot of uh, has a lot of the winds really blowing. So this this person uh, has as a practice uh, to circumambulate a stupa, and the teacher says, circumambulation is fine. It means moving around a sacred site. Circumambulation is fine, but it would be better to have a pure dharma practice. And so the person switches to um, reading sacred text, and the teacher says, reading sacred text is fine, but it would be better to have a pure dharma practice. They said, well, that must not be good. I'll meditate. And the teacher says, meditation is fine, but it would be better to have a pure dharma practice. What does a pure dharma practice mean? It means not being influenced by the eight winds in whatever you do. So that's, thank you for the, the time. I think that helps some, that there are these very worthy things which can actually advance us in our awakening, to have, to have good work, to have uh, a partner that mirrors back love and connection and so forth to work for social change are all wonderful enterprises that can advance beautiful qualities in the world, but they also can be influenced by the winds if we don't look deeply. So maybe that's, that's a clearer way to say it. So thank you for patience and letting that response come, come through. And, that's, and so always the um, invitation is to look carefully and to see what's there. I went a little bit over time with that, but let me just finish with two things. Uh, one is, do you want to look at this in the week, in your next week, and come back and compare notes? How many people would like to do that? Okay. Majority vote. <laughs> so I'm going to do that, and the invitation is to really do what you need to do to, to, have, that, to have this teaching be more conscious in the next week. And then we'll just finish by sitting for 30 seconds or so. So letting what was helpful from the morning be present might be related to this teaching of the eight winds, might be something else that just came up for you that was helpful or some way that your own, something that was unworked out, got a little further worked out, as sometimes happens. And then invite any intention for, could be for the next week, or any intention that comes out of this morning might be in relation to your practice uh, with the eight winds. might be something else. And so may the fruits of the morning be offered outward to all with whom we come in contact and outward beyond Spirit Rock to all in the world. 
May the fruits of our morning be dedicated to the, the benefit, the healing, and the awakening of all beings. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.